1: The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I am joined by today, not one, but two special guests, fellow podcasters who I've been friends with for years. We've talked with one another over social media, but this is actually the first time that we've had a live collaboration. So I'm so excited to have Chris and Elsa of the Flatpak History of Sweden on Presidencies. Thank y'all so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure.
2: Yeah, it's great to, like you said, finally get some sort of uh, collaboration and joint efforts going.
1: <laughs> it's one of those things, and especially having started this series, it's like, okay, this is finally my opportunity to talk to some folks that I've wanted to talk to for a while. So, <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to make this happen. So thank you so much for being here. Before we get into our cabinet member that we'll be discussing today. I just want to give you all a chance to share with the audience, anybody who may not have heard of your podcast yet. What is the pack History of Sweden and where can folks find
0: you? So, thank you, Jerry. Uh, a pack History of Sweden, a little uh, kind of joke, play on words there of a well known furniture sales <laughs> store uh, that originates in this part of the world. We are not sponsored by them, but uh, our Um, We're a chronological podcast that journeys through the history of Sweden, so Our idea is that if you listen to us, you're able to put together your own little Ikea flat pack furniture of Swedish history.
2: Yeah. And so we started from when the very first humans uh, arrived in Sweden uh, at the end of like the various ice ages and have been going at sort of varying levels of speed uh, approaching the modern day. So we're up to the 1400s at the moment. Um, But, you know, sometimes you have a lot of information and sometimes we go decades with only knowing a few lines about what's happened. Uh, so that's uh, that's the main bit. But we also start each episode with a Swedish phrase that we translate to English. So there's some crazy ones like, no cow on the ice. Like, What does that mean? Why do Swedish people say this? Um, and stuff like that.
0: Well, no cow on the ice is what we're enjoying right now. There's no problems. Mm. So right <laughs> now, there is no cow on the ice. And we release an episode every other Sunday uh the morning time european time so getting to the u.s and on a sunday afternoon yeah every other week and we're available on uh i want to say all platforms but i feel if i do that (laughs) there's gonna be a platform that we're not on but i hope we're on uh all of the major spotify apple podcasts podbean
2: yeah, all of those. And uh, where we've been speaking to you a lot on Twitter, which is just at Flatpak Sweden and the same on Facebook. And we have a website, which is a com. So loads of places to check us out.
1: Absolutely. And I will say, you know, as a listener of your podcast, I think that your podcast, well, a I I will admit, I didn't know much about Swedish history prior to starting your podcast. And it's just been fascinating because I love how you work in various topics and and really try and discuss not just the the dates and the names, but just like we do on presidencies, really try and get into some of the the nuances and society and culture and how Swedish history connects to other parts of Europe. And it's just, it's really fascinating. And I will say, you know, as somebody who obviously loves going and doing deep dives into history and obviously our listeners here at presidencies enjoy that as well because otherwise they wouldn't be listening to (laughs) hundreds of episodes i highly recommend if you if you like that deep dive into history and really exploring some of the nuances flat pack history of sweden is for you and I will be sharing information about your podcast around the release of this episode. So be on the lookout for that on social media. I'll also have it on the source notes for this episode. And also, you know, anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Search for Flatpak History of Sweet.
0: This episode is supported by
1: FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. All right, so with that said, are y'all ready to find out who we're going to be talking about today?
0: massively we are so excited i'm (laughs) not gonna lie we we've we've all day today uh because it's afternoon here in stockholm now all day today we've been like could it be this guy could it be that person
2: (laughs) we have no idea
0: (laughs) who's it gonna be
1: and it's interesting because i i always i try to find a connection it not always able to make it happen but i always try and find a connection between the podcasters that i invite on and the subject and there actually is a connection. <gasps> <Ooh>. What? <Yes. laughs> to, to
0: Sweden? This is To Sweden. Oh, wow. Did no. they even know where Sweden was?
1: <laughs> they they were vaguely aware.
0: <laughs> Most people aren't today, so I'm surprised. <laughs> even those of us who live here don't know where we are. So, I mean, it's an obscure part of the world. <laughs>
1: So, with that said, I am excited to announce that we will be discussing Caesar A. Rodney. Ooh.
2: Who, Good name. Uh, who uh, may or may not in a past life have been a Roman emperor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's,
1: you know, folks in the early Republic love those Roman yeah. connections. So, <laughs> you have to imagine some high-fiving happening when we're going to name our kid
2: Caesar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So
1: do y'all know anything about Caesar A Rodney?
2: I rem- now so my memory is not the best. Um but uh from listening to presidencies he was the attorney general. Yes. Uh at very and did he span two presidencies? He, did. he did. Um and then uh, oh yeah, well, I won't, <laughs> I won't say anything wrong. So I'll let you explain because, uh, I'm, this is reaching the, the limit. <laughs> of
1: my <life. laughs> So let's just dive in and start learning about him. So Rodney was born to Thomas Rodney and Elizabeth Fisher Rodney on January 4th, 1772. So we actually, um, just a few days ago was the anniversary of his birth and he was born in Dover in what was then the colony of Delaware. And so this is where we get that connection to Sweden. I could not have y'all on without taking a little bit of a tangent here, because I feel I should note that what became Delaware was originally the colony of New Sweden, established by Swedish colonists. And so just, again, quick tangent. So Fort Christina was constructed in 1638, east of modern day downtown Wilmington. And the colony lasted as a Swedish colony until 1655, when Dutch forces from New Netherland, which is modern day New York City and the Hudson River Valley, invaded. It was then consolidated as part of New Netherland and controlled by the Dutch until 1664, when the English took over. And in 1669, there was a rebellion to return the colony to Swedish control, but though it failed, the Swedish colonists in the area continued to operate in a semi-autonomous manner until the area was included in William Penn's charter for Pennsylvania in
2: 1682. Wow. So there was a real European battle for this place. I mean, they must've loved it so much. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, we- I'm now recommending, because I remember doing this in sort of like middle school here in Sweden, and it was like, oh, we had a bit of what became the US, like, and, like not very successful. And then it kind of skipped right into, because as I'm um, sure some of the listeners are familiar with and may even have family connections themselves, there was then a mass Swedish uh, immigration to the US in the later part of the 1800s, like 1860 to 1880s. So I remember this from school, but it was like half a chapter on this Delaware colony and then just like jump to when we all left because, you know, we were starving in Sweden and had to go set up in, in Minnesota. Uh, so sort of it's, oh, I need to read up on this Delaware colony again. <laughs> uh, middle school history is flooding back in my mind.
2: So maybe they were when he was growing up. They were eating meatballs and they could have, maybe. Like well, and and so you know you'll be
1: getting to it at some point with your podcast. But nice sneak preview, and and glad that that jogged some memories. Yeah. And that was the thing. Like I, I kept on. I was like, okay, I I know there's not really anybody of Swedish heritage in the cabinet for. Quite a while, but I was like, oh, wait, he's from Delaware. Okay, we can talk about Sweden. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Excellent.
1: So going back to the Rodneys. So his father was part of the prominent Rodney family of Delaware. The family originally crossed the Atlantic in the 1680s and settled in St. Jones 100, which eventually became Dover. The first Rodney to settle in Delaware, William Rodney, served as Speaker of the Colonial Assembly of the Lower Counties in 1704. And so he's already born into kind of this prominent family in the area with a name like Caesar Rodney. If folks have heard of Caesar Rodney before, it's typically not, they're not thinking of this Caesar Rodney because there was another Caesar Rodney. As they had back in the day, they like to reuse the same names in the family. And so it's quite likely for our listeners who may think that that name is familiar, Thomas's brother. So this was our Caesar's uncle a couple of years after his nephew's birth became a member of the Continental Congress and then signed the Declaration of Independence. So different Caesar Rodney. It was his uncle, but he's probably a little more well known.
2: Mm. And so there. You know, so it must is our Caesar's grandfather then, who uh, grandparents and grand, who came up with the Caesar.
1: Exactly,
2: so like, we, we, have, we, we have them to blame. They were the Roman history
0: fans. <laughs> they
1: were sitting there in Delaware, and they were like, "Okay, we've got to have a connection to Roman history. Maybe not Augustus. Oh, Caesar. Why not Caesar?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you know, you have his uncle who's heavily involved in the Continental Congress. This this revolution. We have this starting up when our Caesar is still young, and the revolution gave a new generation of Rodneys an opportunity to get involved in politics. So our Caesar's father, Thomas, became a member of the Continental and Confederation Congresses, and he served in numerous terms between 1781 and 1787. But of course, our Caesar was too young. He wasn't really able to Really participate in the revolution. There wasn't much that happened in Delaware at that time, so it wasn't as impactful for him. But, you know, of course, we had the revolution, attained independence. And so, as this new nation is starting, Thomas, you know, while serving in the Confederation Congress, also served at points in the Delaware General Assembly, and he served as Speaker of the House in 1787. So, the family is prominent in politics. Now, sometime around this point, our Caesar Rodney began his studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and in the same year that the new government under the Constitution was beginning, which is 1789, that's where the presidency's narrative began, Caesar graduated from that institution. Now, he went on after graduation to study law under Joseph McKean in Philadelphia for three years before finally being admitted to the bar in 1793. And Rodney returned to Delaware, where he practiced law in Wilmington and Newcastle for three years. So as we've seen in this special series, you know, as we have these figures who are starting their professional rise, they typically are also starting families. And so at some point in this period of his life, Caesar married Susan Hun, who was the daughter of Captain John Hunn. And the two would establish their home, which was called Cool Springs in Wilmington, Delaware.
2: Wow, they must have been wearing sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, I know, right?
1: They've yeah. got to be cool. It's so Aww. cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: It sounds like one of those 80s rap band, like MC Hammer and Cool Springs.
1: <laughs> I mean, with a name like Caesar, you've got to be cool, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 Definitely.
1: <laughs> now, one source I found noted six children being born to the couple. And at least three of those lived to adulthood, but I haven't found solid evidence of that. So Caesar A. Rodney is one of those figures that not too much is written about him. You know, we do have some points that we'll be talking about, but with his family, that's kind of vague from the research that I found. But the last child that I could find that was born to the couple was born in 1814. So they had children over quite a span. Now, towards the end of the Washington presidency, so we're getting closer to like 1797, uh, Rodney got his start in politics by being elected to the Delaware House of Representatives in 1796. And he served in that body through the 1802 session and was a noted leader in the state in the Democratic-Republican faction. So. You know, we saw in the Washington presidency, the Democratic-Republicans became kind of this opposition to the Federalists, who were more closely aligned with Washington and John Adams. And so Caesar's on the other side. He's a Democratic-Republican. He apparently was gaining so much notoriety as a leader in Delaware that no less than President Thomas Jefferson himself reached out to Rodney to urge him to stand for election to the U.S. House of Representatives. And at that point, the seat was held by an incumbent Federalist Congressman, James A. Bayard. But as the president wrote to Rodney, quote, Congress is not yet engaged in business of any note. We want men of business among them. I really wish you were here. I'm convinced it is in the power of any man who understands business and who will undertake to keep a file of the business before Congress and press it as he would his own docket in a court.
2: Wow. And and he means he doesn't, cause uh, he's trained in law. He just business doesn't necessarily mean selling and buying things, but just general government.
1: Exactly. Like keeping things
2: going. Hmm. I said, well, it's good uh, if you're going to get someone to recommend you apply for a job. I think the president doing that is probably top of the list.
0: (laughs) Hard to turn down, though. Like if the president himself is like, "You should go go for Congress." (laughs) Oh, hard to go, nah. I'm actually thinking of taking up pottery. Like y- yeah. you, then run for Congress. Well,
2: like... well, wasn't it? Is it Levi Lincoln? Scene? Yeah, who had a choice between blacksmithing <laughs> and going to
0: Harvard exactly. or something? So, yes. yeah. Oh
2: yeah, <laughs> Tim. yeah. Someone, you know, maybe someone at some point. How many people did turn down the president and said, nah, I'm going to do pottery instead"?
0: Yeah. <laughs> How many people today go? face the choice between harvard and
1: Blacksmith.
0: That's... not
2: many I
1: there, there may be more than we think but i wouldn't think so <laughs> yeah and and that's the thing you know here you got and and it is it's hard to turn down somebody you know like thomas jefferson and especially at this point you know this is in his first term jefferson was hugely popular he was the prominent leader in the nation and so Like you said, it's it's hard to turn this down, and he ultimately decides not to. And like you said, this meaning of business is really trying to the business of government, keeping things going. And we see here because Jefferson and really many of the presidents in this time carry on this air of oh well, I'm Congress is completely separate from the executive branch. I'm not going to have any influence over them. Really, they did. They just made sure the right people were there and they would make sure, okay, well, I want this to happen. Can you work this in? And so here's Jefferson actively recruiting somebody to be one of those folks.
2: Yeah, and um, it's happened quite a few times where you've mentioned in the in the main narrative where you said, oh, this person needs to be replaced and moved into the cabinet. So we made sure that someone else was elected in their local, <laughs> local constituency or their local House of Representatives. So all the pieces fall into place. So, yeah, like you said, it's... Uh, there's lots of that subtle behind the scenes of yeah, getting people in the right exactly, place. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so here we see that, and and this was still very early on in the republic. So, and like I said, Rodney did not say no. He he was like, okay, well, I can do this. And so, in 1802, by a mere 15 votes. So that's how narrow of a margin this was. 15 votes. Rodney did come out on top over Bayard, and the next year he was headed to the U.S. Congress. So the rise of the Democratic-Republican faction during this time was nothing but a good thing for Caesar's father as well. So Thomas Rodney, you know, he had been involved in politics for a while. He was actually named as an Associate Justice in the Delaware Supreme Court in December 1802, but he would only remain in that post until August 1803 when President Jefferson appointed him as Chief Justice of the Mississippi Territory. So two generations of rodneys are benefiting from jefferson's endorsement and support
2: mm. oh wow and and that's quite um interesting that they're both active mm-hmm. at the same time because you see a lot of like brothers and things working together at the same time but normally the, the there's a high mortality rate relatively early <laughs> on so to actually be old enough to be active in politics at the same time as your father is still alive is quite Interesting. Absolutely,
1: absolutely, and and it's just it, it's it's interesting because it also speaks to how prominent this family is in politics. That mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. here you've got two generations of Rodneys who are now involved in the federal government, and obviously there's a reason for that. Jefferson is trying to cultivate this prominent family in order to secure support in Delaware, which was at this time and. We'll see pretty well into the 19th century was this Federalist stronghold. So this was Jefferson being very, very political, trying to get these leaders who would help to build the party support and help to build support for him in the state.
2: Mm, yeah, I guess it's a very early, nowadays, it's, you see in presidential campaigns, it was always, oh, should I pick the vice president, someone who can do the job well, or shall I pick someone from the state that I need votes from? And so it's, it's exactly. Thing,
1: <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, we've got Thomas going to the Mississippi territory. And meanwhile, Caesar, upon assuming his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, quickly became a leading figure in that body, which is exactly what Jefferson was aiming for. He was named to the prominent House Ways and Means Committee, which was chaired by none other than a name familiar to regular listeners of the podcast, the infamous John Randolph of Roanoke. So this was the time that he was really ruling over the House Ways and Means Committee. Rodney was also named as one of the House managers of the impeachment trial of U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering in early 1804. While we won't go into too much detail here, and you can learn more about Pickering's trial in episode 3.20 of the narrative series, suffice it to say that in addition to being a Federalist, which to most Democratic-Republican leaders at the time, that in and of itself was grounds for dismissal. They were wanting to get rid of all the Federalist (laughs) judges that Washington and John Adams had appointed, but Pickering was also showing signs of mental and physical impairment. He showed a clear preference for Federalist in rulings from the bench, was reported to be intoxicated while presiding over trials, and would use offensive language in proceedings.
2: Sounds like a great guy.
0: I was going to say, sounds like every political figure in Sweden up until kind of the early 20th century. What do you mean? You're drunk and offensive. That's just what you are. Which,
1: I mean, it would make for interesting, like if court TV was around in those days, it would definitely make for good watching. (laughs) Not necessarily the person you would want ruling in court cases, which... And to be fair to Pickering and, you know, we see at this time, we don't have that expectation of non-biased rulings from judicial figures. So that wasn't necessarily out of the common, but Pickering took it to a, a new level. And there were reasons to be concerned about this guy being on the bench. And so because of this, Jefferson recommended impeachment proceedings began against Pickering. The House voted for impeachment, and a trial was held, starting on January fourth, eighteen o four, that carried on for two and a half months. And so, Caesar Rodney was one of the House managers of this. He was involved in the prosecution of Pickering in this trial. And on March twelfth, the Senate, by a vote of nineteen to seven, convicted Pickering on all charges, and thus Pickering became the first U.S. federal official removed from office by the impeachment process.
2: Wow. Groundbreaking. And so,
1: you know, Rodney was heavily involved in this. And with the Pickering victory in their caps, the Democratic-Republicans decided to employ impeachment against another U.S. federal judge, this time Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Samuel Chase. Now, while the case against Judge Pickering had been more clear-cut that he was unfit for duty, though Chase did also display a tendency to rule along the lines of Federalist ideology, Again, this was largely in accordance with judicial processes at the time, and this was more of a standard. It wasn't really anything extraordinary and I'll refer you to episode three point twenty five of the narrative series for the full details of the chase trial. But as with Pickering, the House voted to impeach Chase, and his impeachment trial began on February ninth, eighteen o five with Representative Caesar Rodney again acting as one of the House managers in this trial. So they're like, let's pull together the same team. Let's make this happen as well. Let's get Chase off the bench, and then we'll be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. Now, this trial wouldn't last quite so long because it was clear to everyone this was political. This was just the Democratic-Republicans trying to take out a Federalist judge and be able to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court who was more in their line of thinking. And so on March 1st, 1805, Chase was acquitted of all charges against him. This acquittal would end Democratic Republican plans to use the impeachment process to remove Federalist judges from the federal bench. So this was definitely an overreach, and they had a rethink, and let's let's walk this back.
2: Yeah, once you've done something once, it's easy to think, oh, let's do it again. And
1: And it just didn't work, and they're like, okay, okay, we got the point. Now, this also marked the end of Rodney's term of office in the U.S. House of Representatives because, you know, as we know, representatives serve two-year terms. So he was back up for re-election and he was pitted against Federalist candidate James A. Bayard once more. So the guy that he replaced came back. He was like, no, I'm going to try for this seat again. I mean, it was close. I mean, only
2: a few votes in between them. So <laughs> yes. justified did they have like automatic recounts and things back then or did they just people tend to accept it even if it was pretty
1: much time? they accepted it i haven't read of any cases of recounts and elections in that time were quite interesting because you know we think of the secret ballot we think of having to count mm-hmm. most everybody knew how you were voting it was pretty public yeah. and most of the places and and i haven't seen any instances where this wasn't the case but of course, I'm, I don't count myself as a, an expert on election history, but they would actually take a ballot and it would be like the party ballot. So you would vote mm-hmm. for all the Democratic Republican candidates or you'd vote for all the Federalist mm-hmm. candidates. And so everybody was pretty clear who everybody was voting for. Also, and as we saw with um, James Madison, there would be politicians and, and prominent political leaders there. Hey, vote for our guy. Would you like a beer? We'll give you a beer if you'll vote for our guy. Yeah. And so it was was like, it wasn't too much of a secret who was the winner. Yeah just just don't
2: give any more beer to that drunk exactly. judge guy
1: <laughs> only <laughs> if he'll vote enough. for me <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> then he can have five more
0: <laughs> i suppose we also have to consider that the electorate was a smaller part of the population as a as a whole i mean 15 is still it, that's quite extraordinary to have an only 15 vote margin but a, a, a smaller section of the total population
1: Exactly, and and there were some rare exceptions that were eventually closed off, but at this time, by and large, it was white landholding males. So Mm -hmm. landholding typically more prominent, more wealthy males. So it was a smaller percentage of the population that was voting so you you do get these instances where you know it is such a close margin but it's understandable when there's only you know a couple of thousand people who are voting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm a poll worker here in Sweden and I've never has seen a 15 vote margin but when we count votes for local councils for example if you're in a relatively small council Area it's it's not fifteen votes, but it could be a hundred votes or fifty votes that swing it one way or another. Because again, they're just like that. That council might be that local council is relatively small. Exactly. When people wonder why it takes time on election night, it's <laughs> uh, you're like it's because I'm counting small bar small margins, and here.
1: and we want to make sure that those are accurate. So that's part of the reason why. It- it has to take time. It's mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> and so in this case, you know, again, it was a close race. Not quite as close because Bayard came out victorious by 360 votes over Rodney. So, so a great. lot of free yeah. beer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's, that counts as a landslide, I think, <laughs> if you win by 300 <laughs> compared to yeah, Then as
1: now, Delaware didn't have that many folks in the population so but yeah this was this was swinging it back to the federalist and so rodney was out and had to return to his private practice and this was interesting this was something that i didn't cover in the narrative series, because you know at this time Rodney was out of office, but this was an interesting one. In 1806, Rodney was retained as legal counsel in what would be one of the first labor law cases in the U.S. So in 1794, shoemakers in Philadelphia banded together and formed what we now know of as a union. That wasn't really a term that was used at that time, but it was the equivalent of what we now know of as a union. Their organization was called the Federal Society of Journeymen Cord Wainers, which was named after a popular type of leather used in shoe construction at the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, probably could have gone a, with a little more brainstorming. How, how can we make this a little more catchy? <laughs> but yeah. they they went with it. And so in 1805, the Cordwainers declared a strike in order to push for higher wages, but union leaders were indicted on conspiracy charges lodged by retail shoe merchants. And so they're saying, you know, this is a conspiracy. This isn't, you know, this is untoward. This is trying to force us into something and they're conspiring against our business. So they were indicted on those charges. And so the Cordwainer leaders asked Rodney to service their counsel, and thus he defended them in the case of Commonwealth v. Polis in 1806. The case was heard in the Philadelphia Mayor's Court, which was not a court of record. Thus, we only have shorthand notes from a printer who published the proceedings. Ultimately, the Cordwainers were found guilty and were fined $8 each, which was the equivalent of one week's wages. Okay, could be worse. Yeah, it could be worse. And unfortunately, their union collapsed shortly thereafter. But this case set a precedent that labor unions were illegal conspiracies, and this precedent would remain in place until a contrary ruling by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 1842. Mm Mm-hmm quite a while yeah interesting and it was interesting to to hear of you know we really think of labor law in the u.s being a thing you know post-civil war Mm -hmm. but even in these early days you're starting to have some of these discussions and some of these issues that are coming up to the surface and so it's interesting to see that there is a legal precedent that goes back even further Mm -hmm. and so While Rodney was engaged in private practice, developments were happening in Washington, D.C., which would offer him the opportunity to return to public service. On December 14, 1806, President Jefferson's Attorney General, John Breckinridge, died at the age of 46. Now, you can learn more about this in Breckinridge's episode of the Seat at the Table series, which came out before this one. But for our purposes, that meant that there was a vacancy in that post. Now, I haven't found where there were any other candidates considered, and indeed, by January 16th, 1807, which about a month after Breckinridge passed away, and it would have taken a little time for news to get back to Washington that Breckinridge had passed away, so it seems like Jefferson decided on Rodney pretty early on, but I, there may have been other candidates considered, but pretty quick turnaround. So January 16th, 1807, Jefferson submitted Rodney's name to the Senate for confirmation to the post. And Jefferson wrote to Rodney the next day informing him of the nomination so that, quote, you may be making all the provisional arrangements necessary for an immediate visit to this place if you should receive the commission. The Supreme Court meeting on Monday will require necessarily the presence of the attorney general. And we have also an executive matter calling for his immediate agency. You may come alone, as I presume, stay the session of the court and afterwards return for your family. So Jefferson sending him word, we're really going to need you here as soon as possible
2: yeah, yeah. It's-
0: this is one of those job applications where it says start date immediately like
2: start date yesterday
0: yeah don't have time to bring the wife like just see it. just come now
2: yeah. and and yeah the second time that the, a president has uh, asked him to do a job. So yeah. it's uh, on, on, clearly, like you said, at the top of his uh, internal list, when he's thinking of candidates. He's like, well, I've already asked this guy to do a job before. So uh, Exactly.
1: And so, you know, it, you you get a sense that there is this confidence from Jefferson in Rodney's abilities and thinking of, you know, we've got these cases that are important. We've got matters that we need to discuss. And it's, you know, as we'll talk about in a minute, the the nature of the attorney general position at that point was a bit different. You don't usually get the sense of urgency, but in this case, it was like, no, we really do need you to do something. So get here now, you know, pack an overnight bag. I don't care. You know, hopefully you can say goodbye to your family. Just get here now. And the Senate did promptly confirm the nomination. And so on January 20th, 1807. Rodney was commissioned as the sixth U.S. Attorney General. And so, as I said, you know, before we dive into his tenure as Attorney General, I just want to take a moment to share that the office was a bit different than what we think of in the 21st century. So, first of all, there wasn't a Justice Department. There wouldn't be until the Grant presidency, so after the Civil War. So, this was just a standalone office the attorney general was considered a part-time position. And you understand, you know, without a department to manage, this is really just an office that is dedicated to a couple of key functions, but not a full-time thing. So first of all, appearing before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would come in session for shorter sessions. They wouldn't be in session all year. But when there was a case involving the federal government, It would be the attorney general that would represent the federal government. Also, the attorney general was expected to give opinions in matters relating to the law, judiciary, to the executive branch. So, if the president or any other cabinet member had a question about something, is this legal? What's the precedent for this? They would turn to the attorney general to provide an official opinion. Now, as we've seen with some of the other attorneys general, there was also an Unofficial, you serve as a political advisor to the president. And we've seen this with like Levi Lincoln in particular was one like this.
2: And then uh this is, so yeah, they at least their job to say, well, if the president does it, it must be legal. <laughs> Exactly.
0: Ooh, nice reference (laughs) to a much later president.
1: Well, and it's funny. I was just listening to another podcast that was talking about Watergate (laughs) earlier this week. There we go. Yeah,
2: that's probably the first line of the book uh, of the like day one attorney general. It's like remember (laughs) this line, (laughs) and and so now we see why Jefferson wanted him. Yeah, just
0: just say that anything that I say
1: is legal. (laughs)
0: I need you to be my yes man and I need you to be it tomorrow
1: because I've got something I really need to ask you and the answer had better be yes
0: (laughs) don't worry it's only half time anyway you can play golf in the afternoon it's great It's, it's a breeze this job what did he actually do for maybe I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun here but what did he do for his for the other half of his, uh, and,
1: and so that was interesting at this time, there really wasn't an expectation. Like if the Supreme court was out of session, the attorney general wasn't expected to necessarily stay around Washington. They could go back home. You know, if we need an opinion, we'll just write to you. And especially with him being in Delaware, Delaware wasn't that far away. So it was pretty easy to, you know, send something in the post, get an opinion pretty quickly. So it was expected that attorneys general at the time would actually carry on their private practice. And again, like thinking of from the 21st century context, thinking of an attorney general arguing on behalf of the federal government, and then also in these private cases, it's like, yeah. seems like some conflicts
2: of interest <laughs> may come up here. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and and imagine being one of those other lawyers or defense or prosecution. It's like, okay, right? Did this guy steal this man's cow? It's me versus the attorney general, <laughs>
1: exactly.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm, everything I know about law in the U.S., I know from watching the TV series Law & Order growing up in Sweden. So I'm now just imagining one of those Manhattan attorneys like also being the attorney general, like half-time. <laughs> would make the show even better than it already <laughs> exactly. is. Exactly.
1: And, and that's the thing. It's like, okay, I'm going against the attorney general. You know, that, that really did, you have to imagine, created some kind of – sense of, I'm just this private lawyer in this, you know, little town here and I'm going against the attorney general. Yeah, this is not going to (laughs) go (laughs) well, but but yeah, it was, it was definitely a different office than we think of nowadays. And again, like with Rodney being in Delaware, it was seen as this was going to be a good fit because he could manage his personal affairs, his personal business, but also do the nation's business. So you can see kind of why it would be attractive to him and why Jefferson would think of him. And also Jefferson knowing, you know, he was a prominent lawyer. He had been one of the managers in the impeachment trials. So he knew this was this was a guy you wanted on your team. And so, you know, like I said, sometimes this office would be seen as like a also an unofficial political advisor and thinking of Jefferson and thinking of wanting to build up the Democratic Republican Party in Delaware. Again, this would be, and we've seen other examples in the Jefferson cabinet where this may provide some insight and perspective to the administration. Okay, well, how can we improve things, you know, in Delaware? How can we approve the party standing there? So, Numerous reasons you can see why he would arrive on Rodney as the guy pretty quickly. On Mm -hmm. now, Rodney would find his entry into the Jefferson administration a busier one than normal. You know, as as we see, he had this urgent call, get here now. But also, the Burr conspiracy was coming to light around the same time. So, again, this is one of those cases, you know, we don't want to go too into the weeds with the Burr conspiracy. We covered that in the Jefferson Narrative series. But suffice it to say, the former Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr, who had already been scandalized with his fatal duel with Alexander Hamilton, was discovered around this time to be up to something in the West. We still struggle nowadays, and they struggled at the time to figure out exactly what he was up to because... Some thought that he may be trying to break off the Western portion of the U S into its own nation or to hand it over to some foreign power. Or maybe he was organizing a filibustering expedition to Mexico to take it over and become Mm. emperor. Or maybe he was taking over new Orleans. We don't really know. He was just up to something. And by this point, Burr had that, had that reputation for, this is a schemy guy. He's up to something.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If you've killed someone yeah. as well, that's a pretty, uh, even if it isn't a jewel, which is a bit more legitimate then than it is now, but <laughs> still a bit of a
1: and, and not just anyone, Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> The musical guy. <laughs> you are the bad guy in the musical. So <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah he, he has this reputation. And whatever he was up to, it was clearly understood this was not in the national interest of the United States. The Jefferson administration, the more they heard about it, the more, yeah, this this is not good for us. And soon after coming to office, Rodney was charged with trying to track down some of the details of the conspiracy in order to prepare for expected prosecutions against Burr and some of his alleged co-conspirators. And at this point, and, and it's interesting to think of at a time where... Communication wasn't nearly as fast as we think of nowadays, and especially there was the barrier of the Appalachian Mountains between the West and the Eastern Seaboard. In some cases, it would be easier to get information if it traveled by boat from New Orleans to Baltimore. But you have all of these reports coming in from the West to various administration officials, including Rodney, just warning, something's up. You've got to do something. Something is up here. And so Rodney, as a lawyer, he looked at these reports with a skeptical eye. Yeah, you know, And I mean, it was very much you know, the chicken little story of the skies falling. I mean, there were some outrageous reports coming. Rodney was the guy who was saying, you know, he warned the president that, quote, what credit is due to it, i.e. the alarm overburst plans, is equivocal. So he's like, you know, there's there's definitely something going on, but let's let's really think this through. I I don't think it's as extreme as some of these, but you know, we do need to get down to the bottom of this. Now, Rodney's first test came with a request for a writ of habeas corpus against Eric Bowman and Samuel Swartwout. So habeas corpus is invoked to protest an unlawful detention. And request that the accused be brought before a court to determine whether or not the detention was justified or the accused should be set free. And so at this point, Bowman and Swartwell had been, quote, committed for treason without bail by the circuit court of the District of Columbia. And thus, they requested the writ from the Supreme Court. So this is, you know, Rodney's time. He needs to appear before the Supreme Court in this. Mm-hmm. That court, however, had to determine first whether they could, in fact, issue a writ of habeas corpus. Again, this is very early on in federal judicial history, and so this question really hadn't come up yet. So this was the Supreme Court having to decide what is the precedent. We have no precedent right now. And so a majority of the court upheld its authority to issue the writ. So this is the court saying, yes, we do have the authority to do this, which I mean, rather convenient. Yeah, yeah we've got this power. Sure, yeah, let's give ourselves an extra job.
0: Exactly. Yep. Let me let me just put my thinking hat on. Am I am I allowed to do? <laughs> yes, this? I yeah. am.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if the Supreme Court says it is, it must exactly. be exactly. <laughs> here, here we go.
1: <laughs> and so the Supreme Court said, "Yes, it's legal for us to do this." And in their evaluation of Bowman and Swartwout's arrest they found that their detention was unjust because their accused crime did not meet the constitutional definition of treason. In the majority opinion, the Supreme Court held that, to constitute a levying of war, there must be an assemblage of persons for the purpose of effecting by force a treasonable purpose. Enlistments of men to serve against government is not sufficient. This ruling, in the case that was known as Ex parte Bowman, would have ramifications for the Burr trial later that year, as well as future treason trials. Now, shifting back to Burr, so Burr is at this point in the western portion of the U.S. He was taken into custody in the Mississippi Territory and, under armed guard, was transported northeast towards the Capitol to stand trial. And so word was sent ahead, you know, we've got Burr, we're bringing him to you. And so Rodney had to consider exactly how to prosecute Burr, especially with this new ruling that limited, it narrowed the definition of treason. So Rodney put on his thinking cap. He coordinated with President Jefferson and the U.S. Attorney for the District of Virginia, George Hay. And together they decided that they had to prosecute Burr For a specific instance. And this instance was actions on December 10th, 1806 on Blennerhassett Island, which though this was an island in the Ohio River, and so Ohio River, this is like right on the border of the state of Ohio. At this point, it was still technically part of Virginia. So this was still when the nail state of West Virginia was just Virginia. So Virginia was a much larger state, and this island, even though it was in the middle of the river, was technically part of Virginia. So it was decided the district of Virginia is where we need to prosecute him. Now, there's one problem with this. Burr was not actually on Blennerhassett Island on December 10th, 1806. So while this island was being used by conspirators as a staging ground for their plotting, and it had been attacked by Virginia militia around that time, this decision to prosecute on these grounds would ultimately prove to be a big mistake for the Jefferson administration. Perhaps an even larger mistake was having the case go through the District Court of Virginia as Chief Justice John Marshall sat as the circuit judge on that court. And if there was anyone that President Jefferson despised more than Aaron Burr, it was John Marshall. (laughs) The feeling was rather mutual as well. (laughs) (laughs) These two men were nearly completely ideologically opposed. Still, Rodney did his due diligence. He coordinated with federal agents in the West to screen potential witnesses for the trial and gathered as much information and evidence for the prosecution as he could, with, of course, a focus on the activities on Blennerhassett Island. In late March 1807, Rodney traveled down to Virginia to coordinate with Hay and lead the prosecution effort, as well as report back to Jefferson on developments from the ground. So Jefferson was heavily invested in this trial. He wanted to take Burr down. He needed his trusted right-hand man, Rodney, on the scene, leading the prosecution and giving him regular reports. Rodney was initially confident and reported as such to the president, writing that, quote, I flatter myself; we shall have ample evidence at the court to induce a grand jury who are impartial and intelligent to find a bill for treason. After which, I hope he, i.e., Burr, will no longer be permitted to roam at large.
0: We're gonna get the guy. Basically, <laughs> we're
2: gonna get the guy. <laughs> but it's amazing, just the whole um, like you mentioned in in the the narrative series that you look there the president is so involved in this and the president is basically saying, you need to go get this guy. I'm, I'm putting the resources of the government uh, like at your disposal to, to get this guy, which is uh, amazing.
0: I, I suppose you have more time for personally kind of invested conflicts when you're not like going to the G7 meetings <laughs> or like, I don't know, reading books to school children because you need that kind of public engagement. These yeah, these guys had more had more time. Exactly, and
1: especially Jefferson, because Jefferson, he was either in Washington or Monticello. He wasn't traveling yeah. that far. He was very much, he was staying within his nice little bubble of area. So he really, he had that time to think through that burr. How are we going to get him? <laughs> but it really does speak to, you know, and, and again, from a 21st century context, this seems like mm. trying to unduly influence judicial proceedings. And, mm. you know, we covered this in the Jefferson series, but they were even sending out these these blank um Forms just saying, you know, just get if this person is willing to testify, you know, here's a blank form. Just get them here. We'll do whatever we need to to make this happen because we just need to get Burr.
2: Mm. That's the presidential level of freebies, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> whatever, whatever. And
1: even with this, even with all the efforts of Jefferson and Rodney. As soon as the proceedings began, unfortunately, Rodney's son fell ill, and he had to leave Richmond to return home. So with this, you know, Jefferson was set. He was like, okay, my guy's on the ground. He can make this happen. And Rodney's like, "Uh, sorry, this thing came up. I've got to go. And so District Attorney Hay would serve as the chief prosecutor for the government in this case with Rodney helping to guide efforts from afar. Hayes' best efforts were not good enough. Though ex parte Bowman had referenced, quote, an assemblage of persons, and there was indeed an assemblage of persons on Blennerhassett Island on December tenth, eighteen 1806. Nobody was disputing that. However, in a ruling intended to guide the deliberation of the grand jury, Chief Justice Marshall on August thirty first, 1807, noted two key problems with the prosecution's case. First, as we said, Burr was not present on Blennerhassett Island (laughs) on the date around which the case was built, nor had the prosecution established that the folks assembled there were doing so at Burr's direct request. (laughs) So tying this back to Burr was not happening. Second, quote, the assemblage had to have the appearance of war and involve actual force. And the prosecution had not established that to have been the case with those assembled on the island on December 10th, 1806. These were just folks gathered on this island. You can't really call that an assemblage of war. And with that evidence, the grand jury had no choice but send back their ruling that, quote, we of the jury say that Aaron Burr is not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. We therefore find him not guilty. Freedom. <laughs> so <laughs> this wasn't necessarily a complete, he's not guilty. This was, they just haven't proven him to be guilty yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was a
2: nuance. <laughs> Specific ones.
1: And, and yeah. <laughs> Burr had some things to say about that, but, you know, he's off the hook technically. Mm. Though the prosecution of Burr was ultimately unsuccessful, it doesn't seem from what I've read that Jefferson attributed any of the blame to Rodney. Rather, he asserted that quote, before an impartial jury, Burr's conduct would convict itself and felt that Marshall had unduly influenced the proceedings. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right, Jefferson. Blame that.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, any
0: How
1: dare way. the judge try and influence these proceedings? I'm trying to influence these proceedings. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm the president.
1: <laughs> and if the president says it, it must be legal. <laughs> yeah,
2: or if the president says it, it must be guilty. Yeah. yeah.
1: And indeed, this was much the same view that Rodney took. As we can see in his letter of October first, Jefferson, where he wrote, quote, "Our council at Richmond have acted like men and have acquitted themselves with honor, but it is in vain to struggle against wind and tide. The current on the bench was irresistible. It's all Marshall's fault."
0: Yeah, never mind the fact that we didn't have a case, but it's obviously somebody else. We built
1: this shaky case that was easy to take down, but it's Marshall's fault. And Rodney also tied the failure to the Democratic-Republican argument that the judiciary was unduly composed of Federalist judges who were carrying out a political agenda from the bench. In that same letter to Jefferson, Rodney wrote, quote, "...the judiciary..." have been so much elevated above every other department of the government by the fashion, and I may add, the folly of the times, that it seems dangerous to question their omnipotence. But this period has arrived when this colossal power, which bestrides the legislative and executive authorities, should be reduced to its proper limits. So the judiciary is too powerful and John Marshall is too Federalist, and there was no way, didn't matter how good our case was, there was no way we were going to win. And a couple of months later, as requested by Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Rodney wrote a letter asserting the need to better define by law what constitutes treason. And for Rodney's part, that meant broadening the definition from the precedent set in ex parte bowling. Now, for listeners of this series, this will actually not be the last time that we visit the Burr trial for one of Rodney's successors as attorney general, William Wirt was involved in the proceedings as well. So we'll get to see it from his perspective when we get to his episode, but you know, just know this was a major part of Rodney's tenure as attorney general.
0: Excellent. I'm glad that um, we get to hear more of this because it's just, (laughs) it's so good.
1: And it's interesting. Yeah. The Burr conspiracy just overall is fascinating, but even like the Burr trial, because this is the first big, you know, we think of cases that are, you know, this dramatic case. This is a dramatic case involving so Mm. many prominent leaders at the time and so many figures. Mm. You know, you've got James Wilkinson involved, you've got John Marshall, you've got the Attorney General, you've got future Attorney Generals, you've got, you know, all these prominent people involved and everybody is glued to every report that comes in about this trial. And it's just, it's a fascinating period in the early Republic.
2: I I remember you saying in the in the narrative, like everybody moved to the town <laughs> where it was taking place. And so you could just imagine the, you know, the reporters of the time just everybody's living in the same areas. You could just bump into people, oh, what do you think? What's going on? Did you hear that yesterday? And Exactly. Just, yeah, really
1: like- Exactly. But so, you know, the, the administration is quite bitter that the Burr trial didn't go their way. But returning the focus to Rodney, his work in the Burr Trial was the most notable role that he served in the Jefferson administration, though to be fair, he did come into an administration that was winding down. So this was the second term. This is toward getting towards the end of the second term. So the second his second year in office was actually the election year. Rodney would still be called on to provide his advice on Jefferson's annual messages to Congress, but there just really wasn't much going on in terms of being attorney general at the time, and the presidential election of 1808 would see Jefferson's right-hand man, James Madison, win election to succeed him as chief executive. Mm. Now, Rodney's relationship with the incoming president would not be as close as the one that he enjoyed with Jefferson. He was still asked to remain as attorney general, but Mm. the two really weren't that close. Now, historian Robert Rutland in his book on the Madison presidency blames the fact that Rodney remained in Delaware most of the time during his tenure as the reason why Madison rarely consulted him. However, for those who listened to the Levi Lincoln episode, you'll know that an attorney general could be a close advisor while still being outside of the Capitol. And in Lincoln's case, he was even further away, but he was still there was a constant back and forth between Jefferson and administration officials and Lincoln. So this really doesn't feel like the reason.
2: Yeah, it takes two to tango. You can't say, he's not speaking to me if you're not trying to speak to him.
0: (laughs) But it's interesting because this is an argument that we see in in work uh, today quite a lot, like post-pandemic, people are talking about like, oh, people aren't in the office not like if you're working from home you don't establish the same kind of contact and 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 relationship with your your colleague maybe that's would have been madison's kind of like explanation as well well this guy is always in delaware i don't ever see him we can't have zoom meetings because it's the early 1800s like i just don't know how to work with my attorney general because he's not in the office exactly
1: enough. it and For my part, and you know, going out on a limb here, but that really does seem to be the case from what I've been reading. Because where Rodney came in in the latter part of the Jefferson administration and wasn't always there in Washington, hadn't been, you know, he had been, he had served one term in the House of Representatives, but Madison really didn't have, from what I've seen, a chance to really establish a close relationship with him. And so Madison already had his close advisors. He had been in Washington Mm -hmm. for years as secretary of state. He had established close relationships with other people like Albert Gallatin. And so he would have leaned more on them versus this random guy from Delaware who happens to be attorney general. And I don't want to go searching for another one. I'll just keep him on.
0: Yeah. he's good enough we need a name on the piece of paper that says who does what like this guy isn't in the way he's not causing me exactly problems.
1: i mean jefferson spoke highly of him so i guess i guess he's okay <laughs> sure and for rodney's part he spent a good portion of his time during the madison presidency in wilmington engaged in his private practice now, this proved to be an issue in the summer of 1809 when Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, who was acting as the point person for Madison in Washington while the president was back at Montpelier, sent off to Rodney for his legal opinion on an urgent foreign affairs matter and was unable to get a response from him. So, this is one <laughs> of those cases that, you know, maybe you should be checking your mail pretty often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we may have something important come up. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But Rodney did find time to chime in when news arrived of a new British minister being sent to the U.S. who had rather of an infamous reputation. Now, listeners can learn more about Francis James Jackson in the Madison narrative series, but for Rodney's part, he wrote to Madison with his recommendation, That the government reject Jackson outright and inform the British government in doing so, quote, that we declined entering into a negotiation with a minister from whose personal character would contemplate no favorable result. So you don't have time to answer about this actual legal opinion, but you're (laughs) going to be stepping into foreign affairs. Okay.
2: Yeah. And and just kind of like, I don't, he doesn't seem like a nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) I have an opinion on if the guy's a nice guy. And he's not. And granted,
1: Francis James Jackson was not a nice guy, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, but yeah, you do you, Rodney. (laughs) Rodney was also engaged in correspondence with then Senator Henry Clay about the debate over the recharter of the Bank of the United States in 1811, informing Clay that, quote, It's, i.e., the bank's friends and its enemies, about equally divide the legislature. So it's interesting here, you know, we have Rodney not necessarily being a major advisor within the administration, but it seems like he's still carrying on correspondence and being aware of things in Washington in Congress. So we've got some mm. some interesting stuff going on here. And it does speak to that there was this divide at the time in the Democratic-Republicans. You know, you had the faction that was closer to
2: Madison and then you had a growing opposition to Madison. And does it seem like it's Rodney wanting to get information from those people or is it people from outside wanting someone on the inside to more use Rodney as their source sort of?
1: And I think it was a little bit of both. And the fact that he was corresponding with Henry Clay and Henry Clay at the time was in that opposition faction. So Mm. it's Mm. seeming like there's something, there's something going on. There's definitely a divide growing between Madison and Rodney. They didn't have a strong relationship Mm. to begin with, but now Rodney is drifting more towards that faction. Mm. Now, The Rodneys would face some personal losses during his tenure in the Madison presidency. In mid-1810, his father-in-law passed away, and Rodney traveled back to Wilmington from the nation's capital to be with his wife at this difficult time. And around half a year later, after nearly eight years of service as Chief Justice of the Mississippi Territory, Attorney General Rodney's father, Thomas Rodney, passed away on January 2, 1811, in Natchez. Now, I should note here that the community of Rodney was named after Judge Thomas Rodney when it was founded in Mississippi in 1828, and though it's dwindled to just a small number of inhabitants today, the Rodney Center Historic District in Jefferson County, Mississippi, is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So you have this Rodney legacy in Mississippi, but it's not our Rodney. It's his father. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, for his part, Rodney, as the Madison presidency continued on, seems to have had ambitions to move on from the post. And you can kind of see, you know, if you're not a close advisor, if you're not really in tune with what's going on, you'd want to move on. And especially as not one, but two Supreme Court seats became available around this time. For both, however, Madison chose other candidates. Now, to be fair, at the time, with Supreme Court seats, they were generally seen as, you know, this was the seat from New England. This was the seat from the Mid-Atlantic. This was the seat from the South. It was just to try and keep that geographic balance. And so one of the seats was the New England seat. So understandable why he would be passed over for that one. The other one was the Mid-Atlantic region, which was where Rodney was from. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when Rodney was passed over for the seat traditionally given to someone from the Mid-Atlantic region in favor of Comptroller of the Treasury, Gabriel Duvall. This wasn't even a cabinet-level official or a prominent Democratic-Republican leader. This was a second-tier functionary in the Treasury Department. Hmm. Rodney wrote out an angry draft resignation letter in which he asserted that, quote, the elevation of a subordinate officer of the Treasury Department to a seat on the bench of the Supreme Court is an act of such decided character that neither the object nor the motive can be mistaken, and went on to state that, while he considered Jefferson's invitation to serve as his attorney general a, quote-unquote, high honor to take up, at that point, he felt that under the circumstances it was quote a much higher honor now to lay down the post
0: oh uh,
2: yeah i'm used to presidents giving me jobs not <laughs> giving them to other people <laughs>
0: yeah i mean if we see this from the other from the other side this is a guy who's not done much it seems for the last couple of years uh, serving under a president that he doesn't have a relationship with, throwing his toys out of the pram for not getting a Supreme Court job—it's uh, like, all right, maybe calm yourself, Rodney. <laughs> like, what did you expect? This guy is going to pick his people, but but he's—it's also interesting, I think, because he's. It seems like this is clearly an affront to him, to his character that he's being you know some someone who he considers of being of lower station mm-hmm. perhaps both in career and in in sort of societal position is is passed um, pa- he's passed over for someone like that it must have been if you consider this, what societal culture in the early 1800s was like a, a huge mm-hmm. affront
1: exactly and especially And we covered this in Levi Lincoln's episode. So Levi Lincoln had been out of office as attorney general for a while, but the seat that was from New England was offered to him numerous times. Madison even sent in his nomination without telling him and then came back and said, hey, they confirmed you. Will you take up the seat? And he was like, "Uh, no. So... Rodney would have known that, you know, here's my predecessor, a former attorney general who Mm. he's going after really wanting him to take the seat. And you're not even asking me, you're passing me over. You're going with this, this guy, this treasury department official over me. He would, you can see why he would think this was an affront, but to your point, what did you really do? And you really, you seem increasingly out of line with the administration. So why would Madison want to appoint you? Mm. Yeah. Now, you know, and, and this letter just reads as just bitter, 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 bitter. But as I said, it was a draft. He decided he had a Quick rethink. He's like, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't send this. <laughs> if if I want some political future, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't
2: send this letter. Maybe put it in the post box, and then when the postman came to collect it, he was like, no, no, wait, wait, <laughs> no! Uh, <laughs> running down the street after him. No, no, I take it back.
1: <laughs> and so we have the draft because Rodney kept it, but he had his rethink, and so on December fifth, eighteen eleven, he wrote out another. This was a one-sentence note to Madison. Quote, I do hereby resign the office of Attorney General of the United States. <laughs> that's, that's
2: almost <laughs> worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I... I feel like that's very um, (laughs) Swedish, almost. Maybe this is his Swedish roots (laughs) in Delaware. Swedish people, we're very... We can sometimes be uh, taken for being quite rude unintentionally because we're very straight to the point yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah when I started work here in Sweden and I would send in, in either in English or in Swedish um, I would send very like sort of British work emails It's like oh hi Jerry how was the weekend I hope you're doing well I just wanted to check if we should do the thing or we should do the other thing but, and you would literally just get an email back say, okay. <laughs> or yes <laughs> no hi Chris thanks or, no. literally not even hi Chris and and so it's like yeah, so yeah some
0: people <laughs> don't even sign their names in email because you know you have the automatic email kind of like footnote with uh,
2: your with yeah. your
0: signature. So so I I th- I think we should uh, cut him some slack here. Maybe <laughs> this is his Delaware Swedish roots. Just you know he's a, he's going to say what he wants to say. He's going to resign. <laughs> That's, a, That's what it does. It only took him one sentence to say that, <laughs> and then he's going to get on with his he, day.
1: He's very efficient, and was hoping you know just yeah, let's just get this done and. But it's funny, like, you know, having that bitter letter and just going yeah. on and on, and then I resign. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. <laughs> you, 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 you have to wonder what Madison thought of this. And especially, you know, at the time, there were usually these flowery letters. It's been an honor and a privilege. Mm. You no, know, mm. I resign. <laughs> but, you know, whatever, it's done. And he left office on that date. I mean, didn't even. And again, like usually they would say, okay, well, I'm intending to resign. I'll leave on this date, give you some Mm -hmm. time to figure out who the next person is. (laughs) He was like, I'm out of here. I'm done.
2: I enclose my uh, my work mobile phone <laughs> and everything with this letter. <laughs>
0: to be fair, though, this guy didn't spend much time in Washington. Like maybe he didn't even have an office to clean out. You know, no, no. No plants, no personal coffee mug that he took into the office. He, he, he could extract himself probably quite easily. I'm,
1: I'm taking this one picture with me of
2: my wife. That's it. <laughs> me and Jefferson.
1: <laughs> <laughs> taking this, this pen that Jefferson gave me at one point. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> and I did not find any evidence that Rodney ever corresponded with Madison again. Though he did, from time to time, exchange letters with Jefferson. So, <laughs> what a surprise. Like, I'm out of here, and I don't ever want to talk to you again.
0: Not going to add you on LinkedIn. <laughs> You're not part of my personal network anymore.
1: <laughs> that suggestion comes up, no. <laughs>
2: decline. <laughs> X block.
1: <laughs> and so, after leaving the cabinet, Rodney returned home to Delaware, and... During the war of eighteen twelve, he served as a captain of a rifle corps that was ultimately commissioned as the Delaware First Artillery. Rodney's unit.
0: Wow. How old is this guy? Sorry, how old is this guy then all of a sudden taking off a military position?
1: I'm curious now. And and there were some folks who were older, who were taking you know, who were Mm. officers at the time and we'll talk more about this in the um in the when we get to the war of 1812 because you would have these political officers so 1772 1812 let me
0: pull up i mean because not a lot of people launch a military career at the end <laughs> After of being
1: attorney general their
0: <laughs> other career
1: so at this point it when the war began he would have been 40 <laughs> ah, that's
0: not too old not too no. bad
1: but but still yeah it's like This came out of nowhere, but you know, you would have like these, these political generals or officers that because they were a prominent person, oh, well, let's, let's commission them as an officer. Mm. It doesn't matter that they know nothing about the military. It'll it'll work out
2: right. Right. (laughs) Right. They just saw they 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 just saw someone who was called Caesar. <laughs> Send to the British we've got Caesar in command.
0: Also to be fair that's exactly how the nobility has mm. always worked in uh, in the Scandinavian countries you know oh, oh you have uh, you have this surname that means that you belong to this section of society. Of course, you're going to be a military commander. I mean, that was the case well into the 20th century. And, uh,
1: Definitely. Uh, so
0: all right. So sorry. Continue.
1: Oh no worries. So so Rodney is uh, serving as the captain. He's ultimately it's ultimately commissioned as the Delaware First Artillery. Rodney's unit would first serve at Fort Union in Wilmington, Delaware, before receiving orders to be transferred to the Canadian Theater of Operations. Then it was brought back closer to home, where they served in the defense of Baltimore during the British invasion in 1814. Now, after the war ended in 1815, Rodney was able to hang up his rifle and turn his mind to politics once more. He was elected to the Delaware State Senate and served in that body from January 1815 until the end of his third term in January 1818. Now, his exit from legislative service overlapped with him assuming a new role. Rodney was asked by President James Monroe to serve on a special diplomatic mission to South America. Now, as we've already seen and will increasingly see in the narrative series, the second decade of the 19th century saw many independence movements start up in Spanish America. Some succeeded in forming new nations, while others were shut down by Spanish authorities, after the restoration of Fernando VII to the Spanish throne. Now the Monroe administration decided in late eighteen seventeen to send Rodney along with Theodoric Brand of Maryland and John Graham, who was the chief clerk of the State Department, as a special diplomatic commission to travel to South America to learn more about these new governments and report back to the US government. On december fourth, eighteen seventeen, the South American Commission departed aboard the USS Congress and arrived in Rio de Janeiro on January 29th, 1818. Wow. Now, sometimes together, sometimes separate, the commission made their way through the continent over the next few months. Rodney and Graham departed from the Isla Margarita in Gran Colombia on June 25th and arrived back at Norfolk, Virginia on July 8th. Now, after Bland's return to Philadelphia on October 29th, he stayed around a bit longer but finally made his way back to the U.S., the commission considered how to best report their results. Given that they had traveled to different locales and had varied intelligence to provide, the decision was made for each commissioner to issue their own report to the federal government. Rodney, in his report, advocated that the U.S. government should recognize the new South American republics, and he and Graham advocated as such in their findings in a publication entitled, Reports on the Present State of the United Provinces of South America. Now one report that I read noted that this report's findings helped contribute to the Monroe Doctrine. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting you know, you've got this new administration, you've got new things going on in Latin America and Rodney is putting in his two cents, he's participating in this diplomatic fact-finding mission, it's really interesting turn
2: in his career. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, uh he's doing everything.
0: <laughs> and like you said, it's going to be hugely influential for the entirety of, of the Americas that the US decides, no, we're gonna involve ourselves with South America as independent states, rather than back Spain as an old kind of European colonial power and relate to, to them like that. That's one of those real like, massive shifts in not just American history, but world history.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And here you've got Rodney right in the middle of all of this.
0: Mm.
1: Now, after his return to the U S Rodney was put forward as a candidate for a seat to the U S house of representatives. So this is, you know, decades after his previous service, you know, nearly two decades and he was put forward again. In this election, he defeated the incumbent and fellow Democratic-Republican, Willard Hall, and assumed his seat in the 17th U.S. Congress when it convened in early December 1821. Rodney would not be in the seat for long, though, because he was chosen as the replacement for U.S. Senator Outerbridge Horsey, which is one of those things. Outerbridge Horsey. Let me say it again. <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's like, is 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 jerry reading something on the wrong page or his notes <laughs> like, is...
0: or did like two of his pages glue together and he ran out like oh no no okay that was the guy's name we're just gonna roll with that
1: <laughs> <laughs> which I- i'm i'm interested in finding out more about him of course that's out of our scope but yeah. why? <laughs> why can cannot? I-
0: can I just put it on a personal note? My name's Ossas Svensson. People think that that's an unusual name that's difficult pr- to pronounce. May I pre- present to you my counter-argument, Alderbridge <laughs> Horsey. Exactly. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> so,
1: Senator Horsey... <laughs> senator horsey had apparently defied the delaware state legislature's orders to not vote for an extension of slavery and so thus he was seen as an unacceptable choice to fill the seat for another six-year term so rodney was the person that they chose for this new term and this seat had remained vacant for months as the State Assembly worked out worked out who should replace Horsey.
2: Jump, who should jump in the saddle. <laughs>
1: who should jump in the saddle. But ultimately, Rodney was chosen. So he resigned from his seat in the House and moved across to the Senate chamber on January 24th, 1822. Though this tenure would be a short one as well, It was historic, as Rodney would end up being the only Democratic-Republican to ever serve as a U.S. Senator representing Delaware. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. But, as I said, this was a short tenure, because in 1823, having recognized the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata as an independent nation, the Monroe administration had to appoint a minister to serve as the official representative of the U.S. in that nation. And given his experience with the South American Commission, Monroe appointed Rodney to serve in this diplomatic post.
0: I mean, excellent! The guy, yeah. the guy has been there. it's yeah. <laughs> that's a great thing.
2: Everyone in America put up your hand if you've been there. And he's, this is, he's like me. He's okay. We we'll choose you. He can pick it out on a map. Okay, this yeah. is the guy to go. <laughs>
1: And so thus, it was a little over a year after assuming his seat, Rodney resigned from the U.S. Senate on January 29th, 1823. It took him a while to get his affairs in order and to make his way south, but finally towards the end of the year, Rodney arrived in Buenos Aires, and on December 27th, 1823, he assumed his diplomatic post. Unfortunately, he wouldn't serve in this post for long as well, for he fell ill and on June tenth, eighteen twenty-four, Caesar Rodney passed away. He was buried in the Victoria District British Cemetery in Buenos Aires, but according to one source, his remains were later moved to Saint John's Cathedral. Though the Biographical Directory of the U.S. Congress notes that in nineteen twenty-three, his remains were reinterred to the Chacarita District of the British Cemetery. So I um, had some trouble finding out like exactly where he was. And according to one source that I found, there was an attempt made in 1999 to reinter his remains from Buenos Aires to a family cemetery in Delaware. However, his remains could not be found. <laughs> Wow. Mystery. Maybe yeah. he's still there.
2: Alive. <laughs> I
0: mean, a lot of historical figures from Europe did disappear in Argentine, but yeah, that Argentina. was much later, you know. <laughs>
1: Ro- Rodney was the trailblazer
2: in that. Yeah. yeah let's, go, let's go missing in Argentina.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: And so Caesar's wife, Susan, lived on for another 15 years, passing away in Wilmington, Delaware, on August 10th, 1839. She is buried at the Wilmington and Brandywine Cemetery in Wilmington. And sadly, one of their sons, George Clinton Rodney, who was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army and was serving in Florida at the time of his mother's death during the Second Seminole War, passed away just a few months later on November 5th at the age of 25. Mm-hmm.
0: So the wife didn't, no one in the family went with him to Buenos Aires.
1: No, and and that wasn't unusual at the time, especially if it was, you know, if it was a posting like Paris or London, then yeah, okay, I want to, but Buenos Aires, I don't even know where that is,
2: so. You just have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you send at least one letter a month. <laughs> I mean,
0: her her loss. I'm not saying that it's not nice in Delaware, but it's very nice in Buenos Aires. So, <laughs> but,
1: so you know, we have this, you know, his family survived on, and we're actually going to talk more about them because there's not really much in terms of legacy for... Caesar A. Rodney. So we talked about, you know, his father had the town named after him, but Rodney is the first cabinet member that I wasn't able to find something named
2: after him. Wow. That's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> With a
0: name like Caesar A. Rodney and you don't get anything named after you, what does a person <laughs> need to do to have a good name?
1: It, it really seems like a missed opportunity here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I mean, I know that a lot of American or schools in the U.S. tend to be like named after. It's like the so such and such school. I feel like we need to petition some sort of the school district in Delaware to at least name a school after him
1: and make sure that it's known it's him and not his uncle. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, imagine that play play American football for the Caesar A Rodney High School. I'd 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 do that. But I also call it American football, which is probably an indication of how much I know of the sport and how good I'd be at it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Poor poor Rodney. Yeah. Oh. But in terms of his family, his family did continue on and, and had some more political legacy. Two of his cousins served as governor of Delaware. The first, Daniel Rodney served as governor from January 1814 to January 1817. And Daniel also succeeded Caesar Rodney in the U.S. House when he vacated that seat in 1822 to take up the seat in the Senate. And Daniel later served a brief tenure in the U.S. Senate from November 1826 until January 1827. And the second cousin, Caleb Rodney, alternated his time between the Delaware State House and State Senate from 1802 to 1822 when he was elevated to the post of Governor of Delaware upon the death of the sitting governor as he was then the Speaker of the State House and was thus next in the line of secession. Mm -hmm. He only briefly served in that role from April 1822 until January 1823. Another cousin of his, George Bridges Rodney, Served as a U.S. representative for two terms starting in 1841. George B. Rodney's son, George Jr., enlisted in the U.S. Army at the beginning of the Civil War in 1861 and ultimately rose to the rank of brigadier general prior to his retirement in August 1903. So the family carries on Mm -hmm. through the Mm -hmm. 19th century. George Jr. also served for a few months as the military commander of the Department of Alaska in 1874
2: oh and left delaware
1: (laughs) from (laughs) delaware (laughs) from delaware to alaska from delaware to buenos aires the rodney family got around
2: Yeah. yeah wow that's amazing
1: but that is the life and career of caesar a rodney wow it's a mixed bag
2: as we would say
0: yeah but thank you for taking us on, on that journey through through this man's life. That was uh, a lot of fun and, and very interesting.
1: Absolutely. And so now let's take a few moments to talk about his life and career. And starting with our whole picture category. So this round looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member. So this is everything. And In this, we will be ranking him. Each of us will give him up to 10 points. And for the two of you, basically, I've already got it in the spreadsheet. We'll take your two points, but you can, each of you have an opportunity to go up to 10 points. But then your two totals will be divided by two. Yeah. So what
2: are your initial thoughts on his overall career? Well, He's sort of done everything um, whether or not it was you know groundbreaking or successful or, or influential uh, that's not necessarily the case but he's done everything sort of local Delaware politics and the congress senate ambassadors fact-finding missions the burr trials <laughs> other trials and, and everything it's just yeah it's it's hard to keep track of despite us writing notes down whilst we were talking <laughs> it's uh, it's it's yeah he's he's been uh, been involved in everything but yeah not necessarily successful and not necessarily like physically present in some of the, like it's sort of the step one is turn up to work when you're needed um and he didn't necessarily do that all the time but uh yeah I don't know what do you think Rosa?
0: yeah no like you say he's he's done so much and it's also interesting because like he had so much of his career after being attorney general which again looking at it with some 21st century eyes when that's sort of what people retire from, uh, those kind of roles. It's interesting to see what he then goes on to do. I and mean, I agree with you, Chris. And then also there's his private practice and like the labor law case. And so, I don't know, it's a little bit, it's all quite sort of man, maybe lukewarm and putters along. And then occasionally there's interesting spikes like mm. with the burr case or with going to south america or you know things like that
2: mm. uh, and i think the sort of that that the struggle is or well, that the we whilst we might think it's really interesting and it might have been super interesting at the time yeah like you said how effectual and how great was he at actually doing the job rather than mm. how interesting mm. it is so i don't think anything was super oh oh wow yeah that's right Five books about his opinion on this trial, or or something like that. But
0: he also seems to lack a, sort of an oomph, a sort of a, a, a go getter, because he just sort of seems to land himself in these roles. Like he's born with a name like Caesar into a family where his father is already. Uh, sort of a politician his uncle signed the declaration of independence I mean you can't be more born into early political uh, life in the U.S. as a nation state than that and then he's sort of like the president asks him to do stuff and he's given these jobs and it's not like he's out there like but maybe then maybe people weren't at the time out there winning the popular vote and, and kind of having that passion behind them. Yeah. He just seems to sort of go where people tell him to do, to go and do what they tell him to do.
1: Exactly. And also one of the things that she said is kind of sticking in my mind that, you know, kind of got this, this line and then occasional like blips of things, but Yeah. And this isn't necessarily, I mean, he hit on so many different levels of government, of offices, but, and so, you know, it's definitely not, at least for me, not in the lower ranges, but how high can he really get? Because what did he really do in those offices? We've, we have a couple of places that are, you know you do see a bit of importance and historic relevance but those are exceptions mm. to the rule it's not like his entire career was impactful to mm. history
2: mm. yeah yeah um and so then i think like yeah there's there's not even a a massive sort of scandal in the in a sort of personal or political sense there's there's
0: no, and I will get to that in a different category. Mm-hmm. But now it's all just a bit meh. But then I suppose he does nothing majorly wrong. I mean, he loses the burr case by not setting that up very well. But and that's so personally motivated anyway. So, like, he doesn't achieve maybe anything noteworthy, but he then also doesn't mess anything up
2: completely. Yeah. I'm thinking, like... A- three or a two It's tough
0: (laughs) based on not messing anything up i'm gonna go a little bit higher and say maybe five
2: wow okay like
0: a a solid meh
2: i'm pretty harsh i think you're gonna say two
0: all right well that'll make it a good average from both of us What, what are your thoughts jerry
1: i think i'm gonna also I think I'm I'm closer to you I I think a 5 here because you know he is somebody he did have a lengthy career he had a career where he achieved numerous offices you know it, it seems like he was a pretty well connected person he ended up later in his career becoming a diplomat and he remains kind of relevant in the political landscape, even if he's not necessarily a leading force in it, he's still got kind of his, his pulse on the political landscape. He's, he's there and he's succeeding. It's just not, it's not that he has a firm agenda that he's moving through. It's more, he's, just riding the wave and and yeah. trying to to help the the larger cause.
0: Mm.
2: And yeah, I think I might go to a three because it was also, it wasn't just Jefferson. It was like Monroe came back to him. So it was there, like you said, it wasn't just it wasn't just because of one person. It was he did, yeah. The length of it is quite mm. hard to mm. picture. So yeah, I will go a three. You guys can stick with five. <laughs>
1: And so that gets him a nine for this first round. But now let's zoom in on his impact as a cabinet member. So the go get around this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And so, again, just like with the last round, we can each award up to 10 points.
0: I mean, I think his time as attorney general is one of the weaker times of his career. (laughs) that's where he does the least. The, the second half of it, he's hardly replying to the to, to replying when they do want his opinion, and when he occasionally chips in, it's to express a personal opinion on not liking the character of this British uh, ambassador. Uh, I mean, he's he he gets the job because uh, Jefferson wants him. And he, he says what Jefferson wants him to say. Uh, and then, yeah.
2: And, and he literally doesn't do, he doesn't go get him because he doesn't get Burr in the sort of the, the headline. Like, oh yeah. Um, my name's Caesar Rodney. I was attorney general. Then the next line is I tried to prosecute Burr and it didn't work. So that's sort of like the headline yeah. failure, I guess in that sense. And yeah, um, because um you know it was a transition from two presidents from the same party like he didn't have to he didn't like you said it was just easier to leave him in rather than giving him it wasn't like jefferson giving him a a new post sort of thing Mm -hmm. creating we need to appoint everybody it was just yeah easier to say oh well let's let's keep him in i guess and um yeah in, in our page of notes there's sort of a tiny little bit that we wrote about the attorney general bit and the other bit was like oh he went to argentina oh he was in the delaware senate oh he did this he did that and uh yeah so i think i might stick with one of my my lower lower end of the spectrum for this one i think might go back to my original two
0: <laughs> i will say th- three only because I like the way he resigned. I will will stick up for the Scandinavian style, straight to the point, one sentence line of communication. That was that that was fun, that was efficient, that was no nonsense. And then it's made even better by the fact that you know kind of actually in his heart he has this ranty other letter bitter ranting of how awful everything is but that he doesn't send because I liked that bit, I'll give him a three
1: <laughs> and And I think there are a couple of things here, so first of all, you know, to be fair to him, with the attorney general position. Not having control of a department Mm. by its nature, there's already something against anybody in this office. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. how much influence can you have? With that said, I think we see figures like Levi Lincoln, who occupied the same post and was a prominent member of the cabinet. You know, he Mm -hmm. was somebody that Jefferson turned to on a regular basis for advice, not just about legal matters, but also the politics. So there's an opportunity to have influence as attorney general, and you just don't see it with Rodney. You have this figure, and Jefferson does have a strong confidence in him, but he doesn't do the one big thing that Jefferson wants. And then it becomes the blame game of oh, well, it's somebody else's fault. It's not that I put together a bad case. It's Marshall is just unfair. I don't like him. The Federalists don't like me. The Federalists don't like us. It, it, it's rigged. You know, it's it's this was never going to go our way. And you know, you just have to wonder and. Then we get to, and and this is one of those cases where there's a stark contrast between serving under Jefferson and serving under Mm -hmm. Madison. Mm -hmm. You know, with Jefferson, it was clear, even though he may not have been that effective, at least he was definitely on board with Jefferson. You don't get that he was on board with Madison. And especially with that bitter letter at the end, it's like, okay. He doesn't, they are just oil and water. This is not Mm. working here. So I think I'm going to have to go with Chris and be a little harsh and say two, just because, you know, I I won't go to a complete like, you know, one (laughs) or zero because he did at least support Jefferson, Mm. just not really that well. And then with Madison, there just wasn't, that support wasn't there.
2: Yeah. Cause, cause I, I quickly after all, like the Burr tribe was a huge thing and he was right in the middle of it. So he was, yeah, they didn't win, but he was still really involved.
1: So. Yeah. And so that gets him a 4.5 for that round right now. He's at 13.5, but here's where we've got an area that he may lose some of these points. So our hot seat round <laughs> discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. The disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And we can each take up to 10 points from him. So this is negative points.
0: I mean, this guy is just boring.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Outside of the, the, um, the burr trial, which, um, you know, from a legal and the political perspective of the whole thing of the president trying to get this passed, and that side of things, which is certainly high up, but yeah, you were thinking of. Uh... Yeah. I mean,
0: I was thinking maybe I have a high like expectation on, on scandals because we say with our, no, we don't have any cabinet members in our timeline of of Swedish history yet. Uh, we have kings and and their courts, sort of. But but there are a fair few scandals there, and quite high ranking on the list of scandals is a scandal that I know that we share with Rex Factor when they go through British history, and it's when someone has sex with nuns, which happened. Surprisingly often. I don't know. Uh, so, like, maybe I, maybe I, in my mind, a good scandal is sex with nuns. And I mean, this guy is so far away from sex with nuns as a scandal that, like, ah, he's boring to me. He's average. But then maybe it could be from a lack of knowing but 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 I feel like did he do anything scandalous we would have known so we could assume he didn't and uh no, no, I'm disappointed.
2: Mm, yeah so then I guess it's it's how how much you you take into account the burness <laughs> of it. So I think yeah with with the other side I I can't I'm struggling to think of a one point thing that he did for the rest of his life you didn't mention anything about him, like you know a lot of people have you know mistresses and secret children or anything like that, so it seems like he was a pretty decent person on that perspective um but yeah, I don't know I'm struggling. What are your opinions on on the the burnness of it
1: <laughs> and that's the thing, so you know the only couple of things and i'll I'll go ahead and note one thing that we typically have in this round for cabinet members who are from slaveholding States and Delaware was a Mm slaveholding state, you know, if they did, if they did enslave individuals, Mm. we do mark off from this, you know, of course Mm. there's no quantifying that, that horror, but in this case, I can't confirm that Rodney did in fact enslave individuals He was in Delaware, but he was in an urban part of Delaware. Mm -hmm. I did not read anything that he had any kind of agricultural operation, that he had any people in the household. So I can't confirm that he did enslave individuals. I can't Mm -hmm. deny it. I also can't Mm -hmm. confirm it. Mm -hmm. So really what we're left with is... For me, two things, you know, one, the, his prosecution as a a house leader in the Samuel Chase impeachment trial, where it's a clear partisan move to try and remove this Federalist judge and then his conduct in the Burr trial, which, you know, let's do anything that we can. Let's build a shaky case in order to get Burr. Both of these seem like, you know, very political vendettas that he was more than willing to get involved in and do what needed to be done. But it's also not much.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, and it's the, uh, certainly with the, with the Burr, he's, following jefferson's Mm -hmm. lead and it's a very it's a jefferson-led move with him writing letters and giving out all those blank forms and and all of that kind of stuff and for a certain part of it rodney had to go home for his son as well for some of it so um
0: I think he does the the most scandalous thing in his story is uh, them potentially losing him in Buenos Aires and not knowing where his remains are. And I think if you do the most scandalous things in your life, when you're dead, <laughs> yeah. maybe that's
2: the contradiction. Yeah, that's, yeah,
0: like oh, the most like oh, I on? That 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 happened way after he was it was already gone.
2: Yeah, I don't. So I think maybe. Do I do it? Do I say a three again? Maybe
0: Of taking three points yeah, away.
2: Yeah, well, uh,
0: I want to take more away from him, but uh, <laughs> maybe again, that's because I I love I, I have. If you listen to Flatpak, you know how excited I get when uh, when people do crazy things in, in history. I'm gonna take six away. From six. Him. Oh, yeah. wow yeah that's, that's intense
2: when mm-hmm. the other people like own slaves and duel yeah. and do all that yeah because yeah. typically with um, this it's like
1: folks that really have some scandal and if they don't have scandal we typically don't take away points but oh, uh, oh sorry
0: yeah. I, 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 I i i sorry yeah. i take ignore everything i said i did the scale wrong <laughs> i did the least
2: uh, so the least, scandal the least scandal. oh <laughs>
0: yeah no then i want to give him zero Oh, sorry, oh, no I, misunderstood oh, I was like, scale. I was like, what did what did I miss? No, <laughs> no,
1: no. What no, what do you they... know about Caesar Rodney that I don't? <laughs> there was a wild <laughs> no. weekend in Atlantic City or something. Yeah. <laughs> when his Swedish cousins
2: came to visit. Uh, yeah, that,
0: no, no, no. Then I uh, know. Then I want to give him nothing because he's just so. meh. Me.
2: Uh, I think the the Monroe and uh, the the Monroe the um. The Burr stuff is is
0: about
2: uh, a, yeah, two, yeah. Let's or
1: give or him a three. one for a one for that. Right, I'll give him three. Okay. So one and three, and I'm going to take away one, and it's it's mainly you know knowing the the perspective and knowing that you know we have some cabinet members that are quite scandalous in mm. numerous respects, and so you know Rodney, it's it's like you know just you know live a little, you know, have have yeah. that have that midnight snack where you eat the entire pie, something. Yeah. You know, something. You really yeah. but, you know, that and that one is really, you know, being willing to carry out that political agenda, you know, even though he mm. wasn't really the one deciding it, he was more than willing to be that that agent.
0: Yeah.
2: And he took it pretty personally when they lost. Oh, yes. (laughs) He he, he seemed, he was still on, even though he was following orders, he was still uh, engaged in it emotionally to to get so annoyed when they lost.
0: But then at the same time, I'm I'm speaking, I'm blaming this guy for not being scandalous (laughs) enough and not interesting enough. I suppose on the other hand, it's, it's good. You don't want your publicly elected officials to, to do scandalous Things and so again, like we've been saying, he doesn't do anything bad in this category. Uh, you know, as opposed to so many previous people have been covered here who have a record of really horrendous, like you said, slave owning and uh, and and that kind of thing.
2: And and the the one <laughs> when we talk about slavery, like the people who who said, oh, well, um, we should get rid of slavery, but I want to keep mine, or yeah. I'm going to keep mine for, for the moment. <laughs> like That's the worst.
0: Yeah, all the ones that are like, no, you get rid of slavery, but I'm not getting rid of my slaves until I die. Yeah. Like <laughs> That is just self-serving in, uh, in the most horrendous fashion. Exactly. So, so, yeah, he doesn't do any of that. He's not bad. Yeah.
1: And and that's the thing. And it could be that there's more about Rodney that we just don't know because mm. he isn't as well studied as other cabinet members. But we have to go on what we know. And mm. there's just, there's not much here for this category. But this does remove three points from his total. So now he is at 10.5. Mm. But he does have an opportunity to pick up a few more points starting with tenure of office. So we award points based on the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And even though the attorney general position (laughs) is a part-time position, we do still consider it. He was attorney general, even (laughs) when he really had nothing to do. So (laughs) we we do still consider this as he was a full-time attorney general. So he served from January 20th, 1807 to December 5th, 1811. And so, with rounding, that gets him an additional five points. And then we have our bonus points. So, our cabinet members can earn a bonus point if they served in more than one full time cabinet position. He did not, he was only attorney general. Mm-hmm. He does earn an extra bonus point because he served as a full-time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. Mm-hmm. He served with Jeffers- mm-hmm. under Jefferson and Madison, so he earns a point there. But even though he somehow stumbled into so many offices, Caesar A. Rodney did not become president. <laughs> <laughs> so he
2: doesn't yes. get that point. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting, like the time wise, he pretty much served a four year presidential term mm-hmm. covering two presidents. So <laughs> exactly. he owns the same amount of time as others, but did it for two people, which is it's just a quirk.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so he ends up with a total of 16.5. So he is definitely towards the lower end of our cabinet members. But given what we've talked about, that seems rather fitting mm.
2: yeah. and but and lower despite not having many taken away so it wasn't <laughs> exactly. like he started with a high and then had 10 taken off
1: <laughs> <laughs> and especially considering that five of those points were just he stayed in <laughs> office long enough <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so i'm pretty sure i know the answer but we do still have to ask the question after all I've shared about Caesar Rodney's life and career and what we've discussed, do the two of you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars?
0: No, but I still think we should petition a Delaware school district to name a school after him. I think <laughs> that's a, that's a fitting, uh, level of kind of honoring because it's a bit sad that he has nothing if his dad has this historical district he, he should at least have something
2: only only if the gym hall is called the horsey gym hall. <laughs> <laughs> if,
1: if any state officials in delaware are listening to this podcast please make this happen and let us know <laughs>
2: We'll, we'll come over for the, oh, inauguration. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: and I will even do a season on the football team.
2: <laughs>
0: that might be more of a, of a threat than a promise.
1: <laughs> you heard it here,
2: everybody. Yeah, let's make this happen. Let's
1: make this happen. Yes. I, I mean, and to be fair again, with the attorney general position at the time it was, we have yet to have an attorney general who actually gets a seat at the table just because I think the closest was Levi Lincoln, but even with him that didn't happen, but Rodney just did not. He's not the guy that you would want a seat at the table, but he did enough that he deserves a high school or middle school or something, <laughs> a park bench something named after him.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he did a mediocre job in a mediocre role. Yes. But at the same time also didn't mess anything up or do anything you know too bad professionally or personally, it seems.
2: Well, and this is probably the longest anyone's ever had a conversation about before, like,
0: <laughs> since since like
2: his actual children died. Uh, so, yeah.
1: I, I'm picturing his campaign slogan: "Caesar A. Rodney." It could be worse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it could be worse. I'm better than a horse. <laughs> 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 Well, even
1: though he is definitely not going <laughs> to we' we haven't found something miraculous about him it it's still to me and and I hope that y'all feel this way as well it was interesting to learn about his life and career and see these political dynasties and how folks mm-hmm. would end up in these offices and be a part of you know some pretty important things, you know, we've got the growing, you know, got the Burr conspiracy, the Burr trial, we've got the attempts to impeach judicial officers. Mm -hmm. And there was, there were some definite legacies and, and precedents set with those that carry on to this day. And then likewise, with the Spanish-American revolutions and the U.S. trying to decide how to navigate that, the fact that he had a role in that, it's interesting to see that even this character that just kind of stumbled into offices, he still was involved in these key points in American history. So I hope that y'all feel that you know this longest conversation of Caesar A. Rodney <laughs> today.
0: I, I mean, I've had a lovely time talking about uh, this this guy, and I feel like history is of any country and any period is full of people like him. History is full of the people. But still, by their by their action, they, they form the course that our countries took through history, like you said.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if nothing else, cesare A. Rodney gave us an opportunity to finally talk to one another. This was wonderful. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> this was excellent. So much fun. Uh, thank you so much for having us. And uh, we'll have to see... I don't know how long it's going to take for us to get to this point in our podcast, but when when Swedish people start in in the like coming over to America in in big numbers, we'll have to get you on ours or, or invent a completely random reason for you to come and speak to a flat back audience.
0: Yeah, and uh, I hope that uh, a few of uh, no, what, lost my train of thought. <laughs> I hope that the listeners enjoyed uh, this as much as we enjoyed recording it. Yeah, Uh, exactly.
1: Absolutely. And likewise, I encourage our audience, once you're done with this episode, please go and check out Flatpak History of Sweden if you haven't already. Like I said, if you are a presidency's listener and you like that in-depth trying to explore the nuances that is a podcast that you need to check out. So thank y'all so much for being here. Thank you so much to our audience for listening. I hope that everybody feels that they've learned a bit more. And and like you said, Elsa, it these characters that may not get all of that spotlight and may not even seek it out, they are just like us, you know, they are individuals that are part of history. And so it is fascinating to see them and how they approach the history that they're a part of. So thank y'all so much for exploring this with me. Thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for your friendship and continued support of presidencies. I cannot say how much I greatly appreciate y'all.
2: Likewise. Thank you so much.
1: So, everyone, until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
0: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction?